it is stretching us, but yet it is good for us. You tell us, Lord, that it is you who causes these things. And you cause all things to work together. So, Lord, we know that you have your hand in this. And we know the viruses and issues that are going on are the result of a fallen world, a sin of man. But yet you orchestrate these things. And you have allowed us to be a part this way. You doubtlessly have good things to teach us that will exalt you. So, Lord, I pray for each and every individual, each and every family, that we would not miss this opportunity to grow, to know you better, to pull closer to you, to have more intimate time with you in our own Bibles, our prayer time, our family time, reaching out and caring for others, putting self aside and and caring for those who may be in need, Lord. Father, there's so much to learn from this time. We do pray you would protect the church. You would protect us from evil. Satan hates your church. He knows that you, Lord Jesus, bought the church with your blood. You died on a cross, shed blood, and purchased us. All those that you would gather into this beautiful bride called the church, the ecclesia. And so, Lord, we know Satan hates that. He's on his attack. He would try to keep people busy and turn them away and cause them not to want to be a part of this, Lord. So we pray for your protection. Thank you that you love your bride. You will not let anyone take her away, Lord. And so we put our hope and trust in you. Lord, we pray for the church around the globe, not only ours here that meets in Ormond Beach, uh, but around the globe, Lord, all around the United States and in third world countries and all through the world, Lord, that are meeting and trying their best to minister to one another. Some in very serious, serious conditions, Lord. Give them strength. Give them favor. Protect those pastors and leaders, those church members, Lord, who live in villages and difficult places, Lord. Father, thank you that you see all. We were reminded of that this morning. As Brian opened us up, Lord, you see all things. You know all things. And we surrender to you, Lord. Now, Father, we ask that you would bless the word of God. Cause it to go forth with power. Penetrate hearts, Lord. Cause us to be different people after hearing your word and applying it to our hearts, Lord. We thank you for this. In the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it is not only Americans that are suffering. I think sometimes we get caught in our little world or even in our church world. Uh, we have a very close church here at River Bend. We have a tight fellowship. We enjoy one another greatly. But we begin to realize that this thing is worldwide. I read this morning that a third of the world is under tight restrictions, uh, suffering in different ways. This caused us as pastors to reach out, as we always do, but reaching out especially to our missionaries at this time. And in a way of introduction, I'd like to just share one letter we received back. I don't think we often think about those who live in very third worlds and what's going on, even with this virus and the issues that may be on in their lives and how difficult it may be. I, I thought this week, I said, Lord, if I, I have ever complained, there's, there's always in some, someone in a more difficult situation than myself. And I think as you hear this one letter, and this is certainly not to uh, build this person up in any way, but it's to help us understand that, that God still cares for us and gets us through. And I want you to see, um, even through the, the difficulties of this letter, that 
Pastor Didier in the Congo loves the Lord dearly. And this is a letter from him and Paul as he wrote to our church. Didier is a great servant of the Lord, but we begin to realize that they're going through struggles. Paul opens this letter and he shares about the shoe drive that we do every year for their orphanage and for the children of the four churches um, there in Lumbashi, uh, Congo, and how God supplied for that. And he's just grateful for that. But then he turns to uh, a letter, a, a note that Pastor Didier had written back to him, and he begins to share this, the battles living in a very third world, very poor, poor part of the nation, nation of, uh, the greater nation of Africa. Uh, Pastor Didier says this, all of my family has been sick these past days. The same diseases keep coming back over and over. He, he writes this, he said, according to the World Organization of Health, a uh, hundred million people are dying every year in Africa. As you know, the Congo is right in the middle of it. And one of the reasons they're dying, and he writes extensively on this, is their discovering of the fake medicines that are coming out of China. And here they, he goes to say that we, 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 we go to the hospital and we go to the clinics trusting we're going to get something, and in the end, we don't. Didier is also struggling with what they believe to be a crushed disc in his back. And if you remember Didier being at a church, he's a very tall man, and he's struggling bad. He said his right leg has become immobilized, and the pain is so bad he can hardly stand, but there's nowhere to go. There's nothing he can get help from. He was able to get someone to rub out his back and found some relief there. Paul writes in this, he says that there is no definite plan of action. The health care is so poor in Congo that we don't know what to do for our dear Pastor Didier. He said some of it's worse than having no health care. Paul elaborates on this. He says the medicines that are from China, um, the Chinese have no scruples about falsely labeling and then selling them. And if a Congolese merchant orders a certain medicine, the Chinese will label it to match what is ordered, but who knows what's actually in the bottle. And so this has been causing great health problems throughout the Congo. Didier's health continues to deteriorate, and he needs to get to Europe, but there's no way to do those things. Paul says, as we were discussing what to do with Didier, the, the virus hit. It hit greatly in the Congo. Uh, most people don't know, but there's a, there's a strong Chinese influence in the Congo. Often you will see Chinese citizens there. You will see their flags being flown. And so this virus has hit the Congo very hard. It will never be on your uh, evening news, but it is great. Didier further wrote, he says that the COVID-19 has hit our nation hard. Even the minister of economics and the director of her cabinet have tested positive. The situation is deteriorating quickly in our country. We don't know how things are going to be. Kinshasa, which is the capital, has 18 million people. Each house has an average of 10 Congolese people living in a house. And, and their houses would not be equivalent to this in America. We do not have the hospitals to take care of it. Our president has asked everybody to stay home. They've closed everything. Um, there's very little things open. And he said that will be extended as this virus gets worse. He went, he, in this part of the letter, he says, as you know, in my country, we don't have a middle class. I want you to think about this. We have a minority of very rich people 
and a majority of miserable people. These are his words. 80% of the population do not have a bank account. Social distancing is impossible. It is, it is very difficult, even in the orphanage and places where they meet. There are so many that are gathered together in those areas. Um, the kids are, just live on top of each other. Finally, he begins to talk about the, the outbreak. And I just want you to think about this a little bit. This is the third world country. This are people living on just small portions of money. He said this, that as this Congo, as the outbreak floods through Congo, the mission, which Paul runs it here from America, as you remember, sent extra money to help them buy emergency foods. And here's was Pastor Didier's response. I, I was blessed by your letter this morning. Thank you very much. I, I am able to buy food for emergency money and, that you sent me four days ago. And then he says this. I, brought, I bought a bag, I bought 15 bags of meza, of, of meal, a of meal, it's a corn meal. Um, before, it used to cost $22. But now, after the virus, it's $60. He goes, I bought 10 bags of rice, 35 kilograms of, of a bag. It used to be 47 it used to be $30, and now it's 47 And he just goes on and on buying just beans and, and some cooking oil and sugar, uh, soap, just trying to have enough to get by. As I read this, I, my heart went out to him, and we were going to post this letter um, in our, our mail, and you can read the rest of the pictures. There's pictures there as well. It reminded me, um, there's always somebody in a worse situation. And think about this. Think, think about contentment. And that's what we're speaking about today. Uh, overcoming anxiety and fear and being content in Christ. When you read this and you see his heart, often he just blesses uh, the churches that are giving to the ministry, that are, that are reaching out to him. He's so concerned with us. In fact, part of the letter, he goes into detail and says, our, we have no money. We have nothing to give Americans as they suffer. But we give our prayers. And he makes a very clear statement that he's praying for us. They live in completely different circumstances than you and I. But God has given them contentment. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about living in contentment. Living in Christ. Being content with all that we have. And this letter reminded me this week. Oh Lord, I am so grateful for what I have. I trust that as we go through this passage, you too will be fine. You will learn to be grateful as well. A couple of thoughts we want to look at. Number one, victory over anxiety and contentment in the beauty of Christ and his word. Victory over anxiety and contentment in, in the beauty of Christ and his word. Well, notice in verse 8, this is what he says. Finally, brethren. Now, that finally is a unique term. It's... It's not a term that he's trying to finish the sermon. I think maybe we often think that. But it's, it's more, you would more say it this way in our English. Now on all of these anxieties, I want them to come to an end. That's really what he's saying. Now all of our anxieties ends here. And so he's going he's to talk about a verse, this set of verses here, that he is, wants us to bring us to this point where we can realize that our anxieties can come to an end. It is not a closing of this book. 
It's a closing of our anxieties. And so when we read this verse, and, and you look at this, as Brian read it to us, look again at verse 8, whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and good repute, if there is anything excellent, anything praise, where they praise, dwell on these things. Is, is there anything in your life that you can think that can match up to that? As I was writing this sermon, I began to realize, well, everything in this world is changing. The things we hear on the TV, are they true? Are they not true? Do we have right statistics? Do, what's right and what's true? What, what's honest? What is those things? And so I began to think the only thing that can fill this bill, the, the only thing that can be true of this verse are two things. The Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And so I want to walk through this as a description of Christ and his word. And I want to apply that to our lives. And I want you to listen closely. I'm going to give you a lot of verses to, to tie this in. But these apply to our lives. But before we get to that, he uses a, a word that he says, dwell on these things. Um, Legizomai is, is the Greek word. So he says, dwell on these things. The word means to meditate, to think deeply about it. Uh, to let your mind dwell on these things. This week I was speaking to a, a, someone who gave a, a very kind compliment to me and they said, you know, Pastor, you constantly talk about Christ. You constantly exalt Christ. You, you, you have that desire in your heart. And, and I had to think about it. I was driving home from the meeting and I thought, Lord, somewhere along the line you gave me a great desire for the Lord. You gave me a great desire to meditate on him, to think about him. And, and I think that's, that's what happened. Some many years ago, I began to think about him. Let me, let me show you, before we get to this text, let me, let's go to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. If you find Isaiah, then keep going right to Jeremiah. You'll get to Jeremiah. And then just behind Jeremiah is Lamentations. This is a book, a letter that Jeremiah wrote um, as they were uh, being besieged, the nation of Israel, and he lamented over, over a nation of God that had really, in effect, turned their back on the Lord and judgment was coming. But in the most difficult trials, and I think Lamentations is a great book to read through as you suffer or maybe going through something difficult in your life, Jeremiah brings us back to the mercy of God. And he takes us there in difficult times. When you study the book of Jeremiah and then read this book of Lamentations, you, you see him lamenting over sin and then you see him grasping on to the hope and the mercy of God. Notice here in chapter 3, verse 21 is where I want to pick this up. There are some familiar verses in here you'll know. Lamentations 3.21 says this, This I recall to my mind. What a statement. This is, this is what Paul is about. He wants us to meditate, to dwell on these truths. And so here we find this type of thinking throughout the scriptures. This I recall to my mind. I think about it. I meditate on it. I dwell on these things. Therefore I have hope. See, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, how would you dwell on him? And for those of us that do know him, to understand his perfect justifying work that he accomplished on the cross the bible encourages us to dwell and meditate on it and here as as the old testament is looking forward to the great hope found in christ the writer jeremiah says i recall to my mind therefore i have hope i'm going to dwell on these things look at verse 22 what he's dwelling on the lord's loving kindness 
indeed never ceases. What an amazing aspect to dwell on, to meditate on, to think about. His loving kindness never ceases. He is always mindful of you. That's an amazing thought. He's never not thinking of us. And and so in return, as we respond to that, we begin to be people who think of him. Notice he goes on. His compassions never fail. They're always there. Each morning they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. A description of God. A description of who he is. Never lacking in loving kindness. Never lacking in compassion. And he's always faithful. Then verse 24. The writer here, Jeremiah, says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. He's he's my sustaining truth. He's, He's everything I need. I'm going to put my hope in him, therefore I have hope in him. That's, that's the result. He's my portion. I have no other lot. There is no other plan B or C or D. My lot is thrown in with a God who is faithful. What a great reminder this is. Look at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait on him. Another word connected to meditation and thinking and dwelling. Those who wait on him. Oh, there's often the Lord tests us, doesn't he? He puts us through trials at times. He causes us to wait on him because that's good for us. He does not give us immediately what we need. He wants us to be dependent upon him. That's the best thing for his children. And so we wait on him. Are you waiting on the Lord for something right now? Is there a prayer request that you've had? You've been waiting on him. Jeremiah says it's a privilege. The Lord is good. He's good to those who wait on him. I think sometimes we get frustrated. And could we be called good? <laughs> I, I think it's good that we wait on the Lord. And, and the writer is reminding of this. We're into verse 25, the person who seeks on him. So you have him waiting, and now you have him seeking him. Verse 26, it is good that he waits silently. Ooh, there's times that we have to wait in silence for the Lord. It's good to be still before the Lord, as Psalms 46 says. Be still and know that I am God. Here he's teaching us to meditate, to seek him, to wait on him, to be still in front of him. For salvation is of the Lord. Our salvation, not only our salvation from our sins, but salvation is often used in the times of trouble. We realize that everything we have comes from the Lord. And as you turn back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, This is the idea of this. And as I began thinking about this, I kept thinking about, well, what's true? What's honorable? What's right? What's pure? What's lovely? What is good repute? All I could come up with was our Lord Jesus Christ and his word. I couldn't think of anything better that fits that description. And so let us go down through this as we dwell and meditate on some of these principles. First of all, Christ. Let's think about Christ in this set of adjectives here that are given. What is is true? Well, Christ is the standard of truth, isn't he? Think about John chapter 14, verse 6. Just the night before his death, he's with his disciples. And he tells them, I am the way and the truth, right? I am the life, the way, I'm the way, the life, the truth. He puts articles in front of those. He is the standard of them. I am the truth. That means all other people and all other things that say, no, we are the truth, fall beyond that. Fall below that. He is the truth. Remember, probably a year before this, Jesus' teaching in John 6 picks us up, and 
he's teaching some difficult principles. He's, he's talking about the consumption of Jesus, that you, you need to take me in, and I need to be everything to you. And masses leave him at this time in his ministry. They said they would follow him no more. And Jesus turns to disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? And, and Peter in John chapter 6, verse 68 says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. So when you think about whatever is true, what can be more true than the Lord Jesus Christ? In a day of fake news, and we hear that term a lot, and, and, and we just don't know what's right and, and, and what's true on the news today, and what report is this, and there's so many conflicting thoughts that are out there. You have, uh, you have governmental parties that fight each other constantly. Oh, friend, Jesus Christ is what's true. He, he is the standard of it. Jesus later in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, was saying to the Jews who believed in him, there was followers of Jesus Christ. Even during those times, many fled away as he got to the cross. But he says this to them, he says, if you continue in my word, and we're going to talk about his word being truth here in a minute, then you are truly disciples of mine. And then this great phrase, we sang this today already, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So, so Jesus is the standard of truth. It's, it's faith in him. You are who you said you are, Lord Jesus. And I put my faith in you. The next statement is whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable. It has the idea of revered, uh, worshipped. It's a strong term to give honor to, to someone alone. I can't think of anyone more that deserves the honor in worship. In fact, when the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins and, and went to the grave and was resurrected and then ascended on high, the Bible says, and Jesus himself says, that the Father gave him everything. He gave all things underneath him. And he now sits waiting to make his enemies his footstool. And, and so we honor him, we revere him. Look at Ephesians, just here left, just a, uh, two books over to Ephesians chapter 1. A passage that Reformed churches really enjoy, but I want to go to the end of this passage, the end of chapter 1. Because here we find a, a very special prayer that Paul is giving. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, awakened, like light shine on a dark place where now we can see it. So I pray that your, your eyes of your heart, that's the inner person, be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Oh, listen, when, when you become saved, you realize that God called you. You did not call him. You did not come to him. He came and got you. He has given you this calling. He's brought you and called you out of the world, called you out of sin. And what are the riches of the glory of, the, of his inheritance in the saints? Oh, you, you, may, you may not live like a king now, maybe you're on the lower end of the perspective of, of society right now. That may be you, friend. But those who know Jesus Christ, God has set apart for us an inheritance that shares with the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's quite a statement here. This is what he's done for us. And this is all Paul praying that we would understand this. And then verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? God sets his power towards us. We have that power in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. This, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. 
So God fulfills all of this power. He shows all of this power through Christ. See why we want to honor him? See why we want to worship him, revere him? All of God's power is understood through Jesus Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Look at this. This is honoring him. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's, that's everything in this physical world and the spiritual world. The dominion. And that every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So he, he'll surpass all ages. Past, present, and future. He'll, he'll be honored and revered above all. And then look what he does. Verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And look at this phrase. I love this phrase. And gave him as head over all things to the church. I found great comfort in this verse this week. I said, Lord Jesus, you know exactly what's going on with us. You know that we're not meeting uh, as, a, as a large congregation anymore. We're broken into homes right now and we're live streaming. You know that because the Father gave you the church. For your, for your finished work that you accomplished on the cross, your prize, your gift from the Father was us. We became your bride. We became your beloved. We now belong to you. And, and so you know what we're going through. And anybody who is married and loves their spouse, we, we're intimately involved with them. We know what's going on with them. And, and yet we, sinners, are, are, are far less superior of what Christ knows. He knows our suffering. He knows our separation. He knows those of you who are headed for surgery soon. He knows those who are struggling with illness or, or financial struggles. He knows our small business owners that are struggling. He knows all of those things because you are his. You are his bride. And this is why he's to be honored and revered. There's no one like that. Who can fulfill whatever is honorable? Who could fulfill that? But the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we think of him. Going back to our text, we find our next statement in verse 8 that says, whatever is right, whatever is right. Now this word is a word that we get righteousness from. It's a root word to it. It means an unchanging standard. Boy, the standard's changing all the time, isn't it? One minute you can do this, and the next minute you can't do that, and so forth. But, but Christ never changes. And that's what the writer in Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 13, he says, Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. Wherever you find him, he's not going to change. Why? Because he doesn't need to change. His immutable character does not need to be reformed. Does not need transformation like ours do. We can always find Christ. He's always right in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible calls Jesus Christ our advocate. Satan's always accusing us, right? But in the end of that verse, it says, it gives Jesus another title. Not only is he our advocate, it calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is the righteous, the right one. Right in all that he does. Think on these things, brothers and sisters. Think about a Savior who did everything right. He didn't, he didn't foul up any way. He didn't lose any that the Father gives to him. Everything he does, he does right. See, do you want to exalt Christ? Do you want to know him? Do you, do you want a life that is following him and, and joy that comes with it? You begin to ponder these things. 
It's not hard. You don't have to be a theologian to sit and think, Lord, everything you did on the cross, all the agony you went through, all the suffering, all the weight of our sins, everything you did was right. It was right. See, meditate, ponder, think about those things. That's what makes you a Christ exalter. That's what makes you want to proclaim his goodness. It, It makes you wake up in the morning and start thinking about him. Because you've been thinking about his rightness, how he is to be honored, how he's true. Let's not end there. Let's keep going. The Bible says whatever is pure is a beautiful word. It means undefiled. It's, it's a word of moral perfection. It's tied to the term holiness. And when we study the word holiness, it means absent of evil. He is perfectly pure. See, he had to be, didn't he? And, and take a moment just to dwell on this fact that as the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all of eternity, let alone his earthly ministry where his feet are on the ground, where he's living among sinners, where he's walking in his daily life, being tempted and tried to be trapped over and over and over, and all that he did and all his ways, they were perfectly pure. See, that's why he can be our substitute. If he had any tainting of sin in him, he could not be offered for us in any way, shape, or form. He's pure. He's pure. I remember being, I think I may have told this story, but the headwaters of Fall River in Fall River, California, and uh, a family member was managing a ranch that those streams come right out of the ground, and there's a pool probably half the size of our, our worship center here, and the water looked fake to me, and I remember asking Gina's uncle, and I said, why does it look that very baby blue look? And he says, because the purity of this water is so pure, it puts off that hue, that blue tint that almost makes it look fake and translucent. And I remember going, I'm going to drink some of that, because <laughs> it's pure. And, and, and that's just an example of looking at that, but think about Christ, as he stood on that cross or hung on that cross, as they nailed him to that cross, he was nailed as a pure substitute for you and I. Fully God, fully man, not tainted in any way so that you and I could receive the forgiveness of our sins. First John 3, 3 says this, everyone who has this hope, listen to this, fixed on him, that's Jesus. Everyone who has this hope, fixed on him, this is 1 John 3, 3, a verse that we should memorize, purifies himself just as he is pure. I love that term there in in 1 John 3, 3. It it connects me with meditating and thinking, and this is is just a habit that you learn to get yourself into, a a discipline. Lord, I want to think about you. I want to fix my eyes on you. That's what it means to meditate. Meditate isn't, you know, sit on a rock and cross your legs and do this. And I don't even know what that means. It means to fix, fix your eyes on this Lord who did something that we could not do. And it never gets old. And if it does get old, then, then you probably should, as Paul says, that you should search yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because A a true believer looks at the purity of Christ, looks at the purity of the salvation he granted to us, and stands in awe of him. 
There is no, there's no one who can fill these descriptions other than Jesus Christ. Notice the next one says, whatever is lovely. I like that word. It kind of brings a warm feeling to me. I have people, my wife, other people that I think are lovely. And it brings a smile to them. But nothing, nothing more than the Lord Jesus Christ brings a smile to me. The word lovely here used brings up the term sweet, and gracious, generous, beautifully patient with us is the idea that comes from us. The psalmist puts it this way, Psalms 135.3, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sings praise to his name, for it is lovely. It, meaning not your singing, but who it's to. To his name. His name is lovely. Now just dwell on that for a minute. Is the, G, is the name Jesus lovely to you? When, I, when you say the name Jesus, what comes to mind? How much meditation have you done on that? How much dwelling and thinking about his name? Does the term lovely come to mind? Do you see Jesus as lovely? Do you see God as lovely? We looked at that in Lamentations. Too many Christians I meet with, they see God as judge and they're afraid of him, that he's going to strike them in some way. At least they claim to be Christians. But if you know the purity and the honorability of Christ and you know his lovingness, that's not how he wants us to approach him. We come to him and say, oh Lord, you are so lovely. You did not give us what we deserved. Think of that scene on the cross. You want to talk about loveliness? Think about the scene on the cross as those that are there nailing him to the cross. They're driving spikes into his hands and his feet. They've already beat a crown of thorns into his head so he's bleeding profusely. And then he makes a statement in the middle of this. Father, you know the statement, Forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. See, I think that's what the Lord says about us as he's drawing us to him. You and I, we know, we know our wretchedness. We know our sin. We know our self-centeredness. And how lovely, think about this, how lovely was it of a Savior to hang on a cross in our place who would draw us to himself, say, Father, don't give them what they deserve. They don't know what they're doing. Their sin has blinded them. They're trapped by the ways of Satan. Their fallen disposition has a hold of them and is strangling them. That, that's not, not lovely. That, that captures me as I think about that. I can see that scene in my mind as I've studied that scripture numerous times, him hanging there in this lovely statement. It caused the centurion to fall to his knees at the end because he saw the loveliness of God, the loveliness of Christ in the most destitute situation. Lamentations reminded us that the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. It never ceases. The Lord is always loving his children. Now, now, friends, don't get me wrong. There's a day where Jesus is coming as a judge. But that day is marked very well in the scriptures. And there is a day coming where he will separate sheep and goats. And many of the goats will say, oh, Lord, we did all these great things in your name. And you will see this lovely Savior become judge. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But here's, here's what's so lovely about this, 
is those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, have bent our knee, have submitted to him, that he drew us to himself and he lost none of us, we will see him as lovely. We will see him as just, but we will see him as lovely. And we'll see him gather us together. And he'll take us into a place he's prepared for us. And we will be in awe of him. Is he lovely to you? Do you think of Jesus that way? That he's lovely. Notice one of the last phrases. He says, of good repute. Of good repute. This means admirable, commendable. It means well reported of. I want to take you to Revelation chapter 1 because I want to read to you a report that John, the Apostle John, had of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives a report of what he sees in this vision given to him as he's preparing to speak to these seven churches. It's a tremendous passage and it's a tremendous report, a good repute of who the Lord Jesus is Follow with me, Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 and following. And in the middle of the lampstand, I saw one like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. <laughs> There's no one else that fills that description. Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded around his chest was a golden sash. So this, this beautiful gown with with a golden sash to the most precious things on earth, we think, tied around his waist. And then a description of him, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flaming fire. <laughs> this could be scary if you don't know Christ. But to us, it's, here's this wonderful Savior coming at us. His feet, verse 15, were like burnished bronze. When it, when it is made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sounds of many waters, powerful and, and authorities all marking here. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in, in full strength. And when I saw him, look what John does, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Just total adoration, total uh, un undo to him. He, he, he did not deserve to be in his presence. John responds that way. And he placed his right hand on me. <laughs> this is John. Let me say some words probably for him because I would say the same thing. I don't deserve your hand. I don't deserve any of that. But the Lord Jesus placed his hand on me saying, do not be afraid. See how lovely he is to his children? This this. God, man, the Lord Jesus Christ, dressed in white robes and hair ablaze and just an amazing scene that it's hard to get our minds around, gently puts his hands and says, don't be afraid. And then he says, I'm eternal. I'm the first and the last. What a great report this is. Verse 9, the living one. Because a lot of people think Jesus died and didn't get him out of the grave. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. He holds judgment in his hand. He holds those uh, who go to heaven and those who will go to hell. He has full control of that. And he told John, therefore, write these things that you have seen, the things which are and the things which will take place after these. And so here John gives a good repute, a good report 
of the Savior. And that's him. He is full strength, ready to judge all of mankind that have ever placed their feet on this earth, ever birthed here, ever born, ever conceived. Our Lord will be the judge of them. But at the same time, he's gentle. And he puts his hand on you. And he reminds you not to be afraid. What a great report. Finally, Paul says, excellent and praiseworthy. Think on these things. Whatever is excellent and praiseworthy. Whatever is morally upstanding. Whatever is ascribed to God. This is, this is what we see. And so Hebrews 13, 15 says, Though uh, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that give thanks to his name. And so when we think about his excellence, when we think about him worthy of being praised, that becomes our sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the Israelites brought free will sacrifices to God. Just out of the own goodness of their heart, they would bring those things. And they would be consumed up in the flame and the smoke. And, and that smoke would go up and God would be pleased with those. Now, we look at the Lord Jesus, what he's accomplished for us. And that's our sacrifice to him. We sing, we preach, we share the gospel. That's our praise to our God. Because when you meditate on him and you think about him and you spend time dwelling on his person, I promise you, you will begin to offer sacrifices of praise. Well, let's go back down through this verse, and I can see we're won't get through this entirety, but we'll be back next week, Lord willing. But next, let's look at the word of God and the gospel. I also not only see these fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, these great adjectives here, but they're also fulfilled by the word of God. And I think we can attach those to this, because I kept thinking of trying to think of things in life that I could attach this. Even God's beautiful creation is under the fall. And someday he will destroy this heavens and earth and build a new one. So nothing but God and his word, the gospel, really match up to these things. So he says whatever is true, let's think about the scriptures here. What is ever is absolutely trustworthy. Who can you believe today? Uh, you may be probably watching the news networks and man, the battles that go on. And Who, who do you believe? Well, the word of God is unchanging. It's just like Christ. He's the living word. This is the written word. And so you put your faith in him. In the book of Galatians, Apostle Paul had been to southern Galatia there, and he had preached the gospel. And the churches called Galatians here, this letter that was circulated around these churches, had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But soon after that, there became people who tried to lead them astray. They would do something like this. Well, you can believe in your Jesus, but you need to keep these things in order to gain the kingdom. Paul writes a quite furious letter to Galatians. He uses language there he doesn't use anywhere else because he is absolutely on the attack of those who would pull people away from the precious gospel, the word of God. And he says things like this, Galatians chapter 2, verse 5. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. These, these men that had come and spoke false truth. And then he says this, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. See, you can always come back. You, you're going to hear false things, even false religious views. False views about what's happening with viruses and the world and all of that. You can always come back to the truth of the gospel. The truth of the word of God. It fulfills this text. Dwell on it. 
we talk about this all the time. We need to have a worldview, a biblical worldview of what's going on. That means we examine the things that are going on in the world. We examine things from everything from elections to difficulties that are happening in the world, viruses, so forth, uh, personal uh, relationships, all of those things. We examine them through a biblical worldview. Well, that biblical worldview is a cue. I think what happens sometimes, we just we examine them through our own view. Well, here's what I think is happening. Well, you're probably wrong. <laughs> but the Bible never is wrong. So we go to the Word, and so Paul turns them back to the Word of God. Later, he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, now think about that, friend. There's some of you probably listening to this that were really walking with the Lord in a way that was really pleasing, and now you're struggling. What's hindered you? Where, where did you turn from from thinking and meditating on Christ and on his word to letting the world take you away. And you're not running so well right now. You're, you're struggling. Your fears have overtaken you. Anxiety has come upon you as we've been studying in this text. Who's bewitched you, Paul would say? Who's, who's turned you and hindered you from obeying the truth? And, and, and most of the time, if I examine this, I know who hindered me. Me. Selfishness, pride, hurt feelings, whatever it may be, those things hinder us. Oh, friend, turn back to the Word of God. Get your finger back in the book. What, what a great time. We, we have more time on our hands. Are you developing good spiritual disciplines? Are you back in the Bible? You're reading regularly. This is more than an Instagram verse. Those are, those are wonderful, and I'm grateful for people who post things and quotes. But are you in the word of God? Remember, Satan is like a roaring lion. He is seeking someone to devour. And he doesn't need to devour the world. He already has them. He's after you. He wants to pull you away from the truth of God's word. In the great passage on love, um, there's a great description in there of what love is. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Does not, <clears throat> excuse me, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. So think about this. If you love Christ, then you'll love his church. You'll love his word. You'll defend the word. You'll stand on the word. You'll line your life up on the word. See, that's what love is. If he's really this lovely person who deserves our adoration, then you begin to stand on what is his, and it is his word. We never call it, you know, just the Bible. It's God's word. It's the word of Christ. And so we stand on those truths. Think about the word of God as whatever is honorable. And think about this in relationship to the word of God. This is a high view of scripture. If you read our doctrinal statement, um, which would be the first one that we write on is the, is the high view of scriptures, what we call bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of the scriptures. And in it you'll hear that statement, we hold to a high view of scripture. And even that word, <laughs> is limiting, isn't it? But we try, we're trying to express that we hold the Bible above everything else. Above all the news, the greatest people, all the preachers, all of that we hold the Bible in high authority. We view it that way. And so the Bible says all scripture is inspired by God. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Honorable, it is God breathed is what the Bible is saying there. Listen, let me put it this way. The Bible is the breath of God. It's the breath of God. 
It means he exercised. When you, just me preaching, if you can, I get hot up here preaching. It takes effort. The body works to talk, to breathe. Just breathing, your body's warm. The reason we know you're dead is it's cold because you quit breathing, right? So the, the, the God breathed out the word. Now think about this. Think about how close we can get to God. Uh, if you can feel the breath of somebody, you're close. And probably in these days, you're too close right now. So spread out. But think about that. When we read the Bible, we are interacting with the breath of God. It's that close to us. So I don't feel close to God. Read the word. <laughs> He'll breathe on you. That's, that's the inspiration of the Bible. And when you read regularly and you study it in context and you're at a church that teaches the Bible in context and holds to the context of scriptures, you can feel the breath of God in a sense. And I don't want to get too mystical there, but in a sense, we, we hear him and know him and, and know he's with us. The word of God is inspired. It's God's breath upon us. It's profitable for teaching. I need teaching. I need reproof. I need correction, and I definitely need training in righteousness. And so not, why not take the breath of God, his own personal instruction to us? See how nothing else could fulfill this description. It is truly honorable. Whatever is right, let's go back to the word again. Well, the word is the perfect standard to live your life by. Perfect standard to live your life by. There's always a a new something coming out, a, a new diet, a, a new way of living, a, a new something, and that all deteriorates after time, and somebody comes up with something new. Usually there's money behind all of this. But the Bible's right. It's right. And the gospel is what the world needs. The Bible is, is where the gospel is contained in that. It gives us the understanding of the gospel. And so when we think about the word of God being right, that's what we use. The right way to evangelize is use the Bible. <laughs> People don't get saved without God's word. They hear the word of God, and that brings faith. God allows faith through the word of God that plunges into their lives. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the word. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, then use it. Do you want to see people get saved? Do you have loved ones? Do you have people who are really stressing out over this virus? And study God's word and just give it to them. And maybe you can even give them without any commentary. <laughs> it might be the best thing we can do because sometimes we can foul up. <laughs> just give them God's word. Here's what the Bible says. It has a power. It's the right thing to do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the power of God's word. That's the right word to give. 2 Timothy 4, 2 tells us to preach the word in season and out of season. Don't give up on it. It's hard. This is, a hard, this is hard. I'm preaching basically to an empty room with a few people here. Um, I, I know there's lots of you watching in lots of different places. Um, but we're going to preach the word. In this season, right now, in this season of separation, we're going to preach the word. Because that's what I need. That's what you need. This is what God has instructed us to do. This is what we need. It's the right thing to do. Think about the word pure, whatever is pure when we think about the scriptures and the gospel. Well, the word is clear and without error. We, there is no document like this anywhere. Everything has to be changed. Everything has to be amended. 
books, you know, there are sermons out there that I preached. <laughs> I gotta get a hold of, I gotta destroy some of those tapes. They're not perfect, they're not pure. They're, they're, they're a saved sinner trying to exegete the text, and so it, they're not perfect, but, but what I am trying to preach is the perfect word of God. It's pure, it's not tainted. It's like that spring, like the headwaters of Fall River. It's, it does not have any impurities in it. You can drink it right out of there. It doesn't need to be filtered in any way. Drink the word of God. Take that in. Jesus said he came preaching the gospel of God because it was pure. It needed nothing. It didn't have to be added to. And the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills that. Psalms 19, 8 says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Then he says this, the commandments, we would call this the, the divine decrees of God. The divine decrees, the word of God, are pure, enlightening the eyes. Are you struggling with what's going on in life, in your marriage, in your home, in your job, in this world? Oh, study the Bible. Last Wednesday, four of us pastors sat on this stage and we did a Q&A and we took questions from our congregation and tried to answer that. I would invite you to go back and listen to that. Go to our website and watch that or listen to it. And what we did was we tried to answer those questions not from our perspective, but you'll hear in that was just verse after verse going to God's word because we know it's pure, it's untainted. It gives you the answers. And someone emailed me and said, I felt like I was in a counseling session and, or in a Bible class. It was so good, I was taking in truth. It's because you were hearing the pure word of God. You were not hearing a panel of men who trust in their own, their own wisdom. We trust in the wisdom of God. The Bible says that think on whatever is lovely. Whatever is lovely. Isn't the Bible lovely? You go, well, there's a lot of stuff in there. A lot of killing and murders and wars. And people ask me all the time, well, the Bible's got all this bad stuff. Because you know why? Because it shows us the true aspect of man. You know, I love truth. If you're going to lie to me, that, that's a difficult relationship we're going to have. But if you tell me the truth, even though it's hard and it shows me that I'm a mess, because that's what the Bible does, it shows man that he's a mess. That's a really lovely person who loves you enough to say, here's what the problem with man is, and here's God's solution. I think that's very lovely. In fact, as you begin to study the word of God, you, you like the psalmist back in Psalm 19, verse 10, begin to say, they are more desirable than gold than much fine gold. So, so the most richest thing on this planet has to offer us, there's nothing greater than the word of God. There's nothing more valuable than it. That's pretty lovely. Then he says this, it's also sweeter than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Well, that's the gospel. It is sweet and valuable. That's lovely. What a, what a blessing God gave us when he gave us our Bibles, when he gave us the word of God so that we can know him. Then is the Bible of good repute. Do we think on these things? Good repute, is the Bible admirable? Is it commendable? Does it report well? Oh, it has. First Corinthians chapter two, 12 and 13, listen to this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, not of the spirit of this world, this fallen world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Oh, what a verse. Paul has said, and we're not left alone to try to figure this out. A lot of people have studied the Bible, and they come up with all kinds of really foreign and godless views of God. But 
Christians study it because they've been given the Spirit of God to understand it. So Paul says, we're not given the Spirit of the world. We're given the Spirit of God so we can understand how he freely speaks to us through his word. Verse 13, which things we also, also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So God gives us spiritual thoughts when we study his spiritual words. So we're able to sit up here and speak. You're able to hear men and women in Bible studies and children's ministries and outreach all speak truth, spiritual words, because God has given us spiritual wisdom, and we are to think on those things. Finally, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, Think about the word of God. Just one last verse. You know, I'm only going to get through one point. I'm sorry about that. But we've got time. Next week we'll come and finish this. Psalms, Psalms 56.10. I want you to turn there and end it with me there. Psalms 56.10 and 11. I knew this was going to take some time because as you study this great verse that so many of us memorized as maybe children or growing up, this great verse of thinking and meditating on these things, I knew it would take time if we linked them to Christ and his word. But Psalms 56 here, the, the psalmist, um, most likely David here, says this in verse 10 and 11. In God whose word I praise. Think about that. In God's word I find praise. That's what he's saying there. That, that's where I'm going to find all these evil things before the the. Chapter before, he's talking about Ahithophel who had abandoned him and left him alone and went and sided with his brother, I mean his son who was trying to kill him. He comes back and he goes, I find praise in God's word. I find the excellencies and praiseworthy in his word. Notice he goes on to say this, and in the Lord, whose word I praise. So I find praise in the word and then I praise the word. See the difference in that? So when I study it, I go, that causes me to praise God. And then from there, it causes me to take that praise, take that word, and live that out in worship to God. Notice the rest of it, verse 11. In God I have put my trust. Listen, friend. The word of God leads you to trust in God. If you're not in the word, it's going to be so difficult to trust him. You're going to end up making up a, a kind of Jesus that fits your culture and your lifestyle and so forth. That's going to lead you way away from the true Jesus. The word of God causes us to trust him. And you're going to read things that are going to say, oh, that's not right in my life. And when you bend your knee and submit to him, you'll trust him. And so David says, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And let me add this, this is my thought, what can a virus do to you? What can anything do to you? If your trust is in the word of God, in a God who will never leave you nor forsake you, who will abide with you, who's lovely and beautiful and right, and all of those things that you dwell on him, what can man do? He may be able to take our life, but our soul is secured by a lovely savior and will never be lost will always be his. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a sweet time in your word. Lord, we're working on anxiety and contentment here. We're trying to be men and women, boys and girls, 
through the help of your spirit, certainly by your word, to meditate on these deep, beautiful truths. We want to think about them, Lord. We want to see your lovingness. We want to see your righteousness. We want to behold these truths that, that remind us that the Bible reports rightly of you. And it helps us through these difficult times, Lord. Father, I, I think I can confess not only for myself, but for many people who, who are involved in this ministry and members. And Lord, we often get consumed with ourselves. We're consumed about our health. We're consumed about our weight. We're consumed about our finances. And so, Lord, we lose our joy. We lose our joy. The Bible teaches us if we're truly saved, we cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose the joy of our salvation because we have meditated, we have thought, we have dwelt on the wrong things. And Lord, it is not wrong to deal with our health, but if it comes to a selfish end of it, Lord, we have not dwelt on you and understood from your word how you think about us and how you talk about us and what you have accomplished for us, we will find ourselves buried in selfish thoughts. And so, Lord, I pray that verse 8 will come alive to us during the season of separation. We would think of you, Lord. Dwell on you. Be captivated by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. See his beauty. See his loveliness. See his truth. See his righteousness. And all find that in the truth of the word of God. This great, perfect report of who you are. May we dwell on these things, Lord. Forgive us when we move away from you in selfishness, Lord. Bring us to repentance. May we have short accounts and walk with you quickly. We praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.